0: This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1-800-55-1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead.
1: There is no death. There's only me, 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 who's dying.
2: My name is Andrew Denton. I'm a writer and broadcaster who lives in Sydney, Australia. Here we have no law to help the terminally or the chronically ill die, which means that good people are being forced to die bad deaths. I want to find out why. Who am I to be talking to you about a subject as complex as assisted dying? I have no medical qualification, so what would I know? It's true I have no expertise, other than the expertise too many of us share. I saw someone I love die badly. My dad Kit used to joke that he wanted to go by walking into the shallow end of an Olympic-sized pool filled with single malt whiskey and just keep walking. Sadly, that never happened. Watching him die remains the most profoundly shocking experience of my life. With my sisters Joe and Pip, I stood helplessly by as death picked up this strong man and shook him out until he was nothing. Dad did not go gentle. Although clearly dying of heart failure and obviously in great pain, he was assisted to die in the only way that Australia's law then and now would allow. He was given increasing doses of morphine to settle the pain. But morphine never did settle the pain, not his and not ours. The images of those final three days will never be erased. Well, what are your memories of Kit in those last few days? Him being wheeled down from the ward down to the palliative uh, ward room um, and being... Zonked out on drugs but in obvious pain from the movement of the trolley and distress and
3: not knowing whether he was still there inside when we spoke to him. Jo, what about you? That sense of this is not going how he would have wanted it to um, and feeling helpless and powerless around that to a large degree.
2: And my memory in particular is you know, because we took it in turns to be there at night, is that all through this time waves and spasms of pain went through Kit, and and he he moan and groan and twitch and and uh, and I remember thinking at the time, this doesn't look like sedation to me. This uh, he's in real pain. Uh, have I misremembered that?
3: I don't think so, no. I think there were times when that was clearly what was going on and at that point the drugs weren't enough to cut through all of that.
2: Dad's last days were filled with a kind of suffering he would never have wished on anyone. The end, when it came, was violent. I needed to know, why did my father have to die like that?
4: A fear of a bad death.
1: Sufferers. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. The denying to them another it's option.
2: This leaves me no choice. A perfect combination. Yeah.
1: Of the eugenic impulse. This evaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion we of death. We
2: the game. I felt judged. I it was over. People want an answer. I know they can't control me. Police are
0: obliged to charge you. We should not what the hell
1: can do. murder, I'm manslaughter. Denying
0: them afraid. another option. But you will die very peacefully. Don't do this lightly.
2: You're listening to Better Off Dead, a podcast dedicated to finding out the truth about assisted dying. How does it work? Who is it for? And is it safe? To do that, I'm going to travel to countries where laws to help people die already exist. And we're going to hear from people on all sides of this question. I'm going to speak to doctors, nurses, activists, opponents, and most particularly, the dying in their families. So we are... Recording. Just uh, The first person I wanted to speak with was our old family doctor, Vic Dawson. That's Victor Dawson, um, 63. I and, wanted to know why Dad had suffered know, so much as he died.
1: I think even at that stage they were still trying to treat his heart failure and still trying to treat his liver and kidneys medically. And they were using almost that double principle of if they gave him too much they would
2: kill him so they couldn't give him enough to give him pain relief. And I've never seen the logic in that. That's what I couldn't understand. When he went into unconsciousness, yeah. he was still clearly in pain. So yes. he, there was there was no life left for him in there any meaningful no sense.
1: There should have been no reason not to give him quite strong pain relief that would have made him deeply unconscious and non-responsive to pain. I don't think there's any excuse for that treatment.
2: Listening to Vic, I couldn't help but wonder to whose benefit was Dad kept alive for three more days of pain. Wouldn't it have been better instead to help him die, quickly and peacefully? Kit died 18 years ago. In the years since, whenever I talk about it, I'm struck by how many respond with similar stories of family members dying slowly, in pain and seemingly beyond medical help. Every time I hear it, I think, surely we can do better than this. Then a few years ago, I read an article by Tasmanian writer Margareta Poz about the final days of her father, Hugo, who lived in the Netherlands. Margareta described receiving a phone call from her stepbrother in Amsterdam, telling her that Hugo, diagnosed with cancer 18 months earlier, is dying and has chosen euthanasia. He has three days of life left, she was told. Please come. When Margareta arrived, she found her father conducting his own wake.
0: He, he was the host. Um, it was almost like you know he was. People were coming and they were chatting and and I can remember one man going who I'd never met. It was the president of his tennis club and I heard him say, "Well, shook his hand, well goodbye Hugo. You know it's been a pleasure knowing you and having you as a member of the club." And I thought it was you know like my father was going off on a tour somewhere or to live elsewhere. You know not that he was going to die. Um, it was very civilized. I was completely at sea in this ritual of death. Uh, But in fact, looking back on it, it was really rather beautiful
2: that you really could say goodbye to people. So he made it widely known that he was leaving on Saturday.
0: Yes, widely known and
2: everybody knew.
0: And he rang my mother in Australia um, and said goodbye to her. They'd been divorced for, I don't know, decades and decades.
2: Hugo's last night was spent just with family. They had a final meal and talked of inconsequential things. All the big things had already been said.
0: And then we sat down in the sitting room and it was a full moon, I remember, so we opened the curtains and he wanted to listen to Mozart. It was like a farewell concert.
2: When Margareta arrived the next morning, Hugo, freshly shaved and in pyjamas and dressing gown, admitted that when he had first woken up that morning, he had forgotten it was his last day. And then he said that, you know, he had no particular
0: thoughts, no regrets, his mind was a blank, and then he turned around and he said, this is like waiting for god <laughs> uh, Which made us sort of all laugh.
2: The doctor came promptly at ten.
0: My father lay down, my stepmother held his hands, and he nodded assent, and the doctor gave him an injection, and my father just said something um, before he went to sleep, but it was a light-hearted, lilting tone, and he went to sleep. And then a little while later the doctor had another injection. And he looked at us to nod assent, which we did, and that put my father into a coma. And then some time later he held up a third injection and we all nodded. And he gave him an injection and that stopped his heart.
2: Though Margareta had come to confront her father's death, what she found instead surprised her. It was life-affirming.
0: It was definitely life-affirming. And, I mean, my father, in that sense, had a great death, if you can say something is a great death. I mean, we've all got to die. Uh, We all know that, but we shy away from the subject, particularly in Australia, and I think that's one of the reasons there's so much anti-euthanasia talk is just because there's this terrible horror about death, um, which I understand, but... uh, You know, we have to face it. And my father faced death in the eye, and he won.
2: Margareta's story lit a fire in my brain. How is it that the Netherlands can help people to die humanely, but in Australia, we can't?
1: We have passed
2: the law for the The Northern Northern Territory. Territory
1: Act... Sets in place strict uh, criteria a for a very few people. The On the 25th of
0: May, uh, in 1995, in the, the world's first voluntary euthanasia bill passed. A
2: lot of people don't know this, but Australia was the first place in the world to pass a law giving terminally ill people the legal right to be helped to die. That was in the Northern Territory in 1995, but within a year that law had been overturned by the newly elected Conservative Andrews federal government. Passed
0: a private members' bill, which killed the Territory's euthanasia laws,
2: I don't think yeah. future Australians will thank us if
3: we didn't have the courage Tony to address Burke this. Worked with Kevin Andrews.
2: Only four people have been able to use it. Were people happy to see the law gone? No. Every opinion poll taken in this country over the last decade shows overwhelming public support in excess of 70% for assisted dying. 70%! That kind of number is like crack cocaine to a politician, a no-brainer of an issue to get behind, or so you'd think, but not in Australia. Since that law was overturned in 96, none of the 27 attempts to pass a new one here have succeeded. It doesn't make sense. Why can't we help people who are in great pain and beyond medical help to die? Why can't they die like Hugo and not like Kit?
1: But we are gathering strength against the invasion of death. The truth is winning out and we are fighting back on the battlegrounds.
2: That's Catherine Foster, a litigation lawyer from the States. She's on the front line in the war against assisted dying. I'd discovered that she and many of the world's leading anti-euthanasia campaigners were about to gather in Adelaide, the first time ever in the Southern Hemisphere. You've got the voice I always wanted. (laughs) It happens sometimes. (laughs) The guy pulling it together was local boy Paul Russell, who quit his job five years ago to set up Hope, an organisation dedicated to preventing the very law I'd like to see happen. I wondered, where did that passion come from? My father was... um...
0: Uh, was a unionist in his early life on the waterfront here. Um, I think I gained from him a sense of justice that has been uh, probably a dominant force in my life, I think. A a real desire to further humanity and, and to protect vulnerable people, to stand up for those who can't. Um,
2: and I guess to make the world a better place, generally. For- I don't want to criticise, but it's not working, Paul. The world is not a better place. <laughs> well, perhaps it would be worse if we, if we went around. I don't know. <laughs> In seriousness, it's that question of vulnerability uh, that that particularly drives your uh, opposition to assisted dying or euthanasia laws. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, I also have, I have a son with a disability as well, which I guess it um,
0: intensifies some of my thinking. Um, and it's given me... A relationship, a wonderful
2: relationship
0: to the disability community and and where I see this is is very, very
2: real. Even though I've confessed to being the enemy, Paul has graciously invited me to the symposium to hear their arguments. Unsure of what I'm letting myself in for, I walk into a small conference room in a mid-range hotel on the fringe of the Adelaide CBD to find about 50 people, mostly older, some in wheelchairs. I'm made to feel very welcome, and as I look at the glossy program sponsored by groups like Doctors Opposed to Euthanasia and Lives Worth Living, I'm curious about what the case against looks like. What happens next, I can only liken to being hit in the face with a moral and philosophical shovel. (laughs) I think about my children.
1: I think they are going to be the generation left to deal with a culture where suicide is normalized and glamorized if this sort of legislation once you passed, breach the inalienable right to life. Non voluntary euthanasia follows voluntary euthanasia as surely as the night follows the day. You cannot control it. But it, it divides people into people who are disposable and people who are not. And that is a real problem. You know, the insistence that consent makes the act good or at least benign is entirely wrong. It should be seen in the broader context, the philosophical context, of the eugenic impulse to relieve the world of unproductive burdens.
2: By morning tea, I'm reeling. That phrase, the eugenic impulse to relieve the world of unproductive burdens, is going round and round in my head. Is this really what they think Australia will turn into if we allow assisted dying? At the small merch desk, a book on Nazi eugenics is for sale. I snap up a copy along with one called Exposing Vulnerable People to Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide. Its author is Alex Schadenberg, an intense Canadian and clearly the alpha male in the room.
1: <laughs> Alex uh, is known to you all. He's now going to talk to us. Alex has that.
2: spent the last 12 years travelling the world fighting the good fight against assisted dying. Along the way, he's made some impressive connections. It, it
4: I was at a conference in, in, in 1995, and the reason I met the Pope was because I brought my baby with me, Peter. He's my autistic son. We didn't know that he was autistic. But anyway, we were the very last ones in the line. And so we ended up having all these pictures, and we spoke to him for, I don't know, 35, 40 seconds, whatever it was. And you know, it was sort of shocking because John Paul II was different because he actually spoke to you. Hmm and he's actually looking in your eyes and speaking to you. That did affect me.
2: Mm.
4: That, that does stick with you. Whether you're a
2: Catholic or not, that does stick with you. Alex mm. can see so no circumstance in which someone should be legally helped to die.
4: Uh, once you allow that, you're actually allowing somebody in law to be directly involved with the cause of one other person's death. And it's a serious problem because the intentions of the person involved in it, how are you gonna prove that? Uh, There's many times we find ourselves in difficult times in our life. Uh, Is the answer now
2: to help someone kill themselves? It's a real eye-opener to learn how these people see the world, and in a word, it's grim. At lunch I get talking to a school teacher from Victoria whose 26-year-old son used euthanasia advocate Philip Nitschke's online forum to source the deadly drug Nimbutal and take his own life. It's a terrible story. Tom from Belgium tells me his mother was euthanized without his knowledge. Henk from the Netherlands has a similar story about his grandfather. The warnings are everywhere about what happens when you allow a law to help people die.
1: If you want to see the future, of institutionalizing a culture of assisted suicide. Let's look at what happened in Belgium. Let's look at the fact that the two 45-year-old twins were given uh, euthanasia uh, because they did not want to, because they were going blind and they did not want to live any further. Let's let's look at the the 47-year-old woman who had tinnitus, who was granted a, a euthanasia. We heard about that. Listening closely,
2: I fill page after page in my notebook with ominous statistics. Euthanasia deaths in the Netherlands are going up by 15% every year. Psychiatric and dementia patients are now sharply on the rise. The slippery slope, it seems, has become a precipice. And no one is in greater danger than the elderly, as Nancy Elliott from New Hampshire emphasises in her talk on tactics. Um, Elder
0: abuse, elder abuse is excellent. There's nobody in the world that denies that there's elder abuse. And some of the the people that are most concerned about elder abuse, but might be against us, can be turned to our side by explaining that this gives a very final avenue to abuse an elder.
2: The disabled, too, are prime targets. Right
0: now, the disability argument is really kicking it. It's very powerful. Now, will it always be powerful? We don't know. Two, three, four years from now, that may have holes kicked in it, you know, for different reasons, so we have to be flexible. You know, when when one of our arguments dies, we need to be ready to pick up another one.
2: From what I've seen, these people don't seem to be running out of arguments, but it gets worse. Under the blanket of euthanasia laws, Alex tells me, Elderly, vulnerable people are being murdered in their hundreds in Belgium and the Netherlands.
4: So, where are we seeing abuse as a law in both the Netherlands and Belgium? It's highly oriented towards people who are incompetent to make decisions for themselves. So, what you see in the data, so it's very recent data, and that data made it quite clear that about 1.7% of all
2: the deaths were lives that were hastened without request. Alex, who is at pains to point out that his data is all based on original studies done by Belgian and Dutch researchers, estimates the total number of unrequested deaths in Belgium at about a 1,000. Uh, so, so is it your assertion that those 1,000 deaths, or the majority of them, were in effect a murder because they were not deaths that anyone had consented to?
4: Uh, murder, manslaughter, it depends on how you define it in the law. Yes, they are. They're, they're deaths that occurred, that is, the doctors admitting that they intentionally hastened those deaths.
2: I'd heard a lot of heavy stuff today, but nothing as heavy as this. Could it be right that the elderly are being murdered by the score? If it's true, then this seems to back up what they've been saying, that these laws aren't safe. It's been a long day. As the sun sets, Tom from Belgium grabs me. He wants my email address so he can send me some links to Nazi euthanasia videos. I came away from the Hope Symposium feeling shaken. Shaken because they had made serious accusations about what was happening in Belgium and the Netherlands that I knew couldn't be easily dismissed. But also shaken by their dark and paranoid view of the world. I couldn't square the Australia they were describing, where a law based on compassion would mutate into a society in which the weaker disposed of, with the Australia I know. We're the land of neighbors, not Nazis. I thought again of Dad and his joke about wanting to die by walking into an Olympic-sized pool filled with single malt whiskey. Few get to dictate the terms of their death, but I suspect the way we would all like to die is close to universal, if we had a choice. When it's your time, how do you want to go, Pip? Quietly. I'm happy not to rage.
0: I'd like to go to sleep and wake up dead, effectively, as long as the cats
2: don't eat me. Yeah, I wouldn't trust them if I were you. You know what they're like. <laughs>
3: what about you, jo? Um, Well, I would absolutely want to know when so that I could, you know, speak to the people I wanted to speak to and then I'd like to go to bed and wake up dead. That, for me, would be have a lovely meal, mm. have a, you know, galoshes full of wine <laughs> um, and then go to bed and that would be the end of it. But what about you? Yeah. Oh,
2: I think, uh, like most people, I'd like to be, you know, with the people I love. I'd like to have people with me, music that I like. I think to be as fiercely reminded as possible of who I love and who loves me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most you can ask other than perhaps Scarlett Johansson in a bikini. Yeah. There was one other thing from my day at the Hope Symposium that stayed with me troubled me, in fact. Beneath the warmth of their welcome and the sincerity of their concerns lay something altogether harsher. It was a willingness to judge those who ask for help to die in the most brutal of terms. Here's Kevin Yule from the UK, a self-described liberal humanist.
1: Um, It reinforces
2: the ideas of human beings
1: as helpless and pathetic, unable to act for themselves, uh, whereas I uh, contrast that with the humanist idea of the robust, independent, self-reliant, moral individual. If you create this into a medical procedure, you take away the moral choice, the moral responsibility that a person takes for taking
2: their own life. For the people at Hope, to seek the choice of assisted dying is somehow to be a moral coward.
3: Oh my gosh, that's cruel. That's really cruel. So you're going to persecute me again. So not only am I dying... Not only I'm in pain, but now you're going to call me a coward? Really? Get real! That's insane.
2: For Liz, who's dying of cancer, that choice—or the lack of it—in Australia is about something far more excruciating. Next week, we'll hear Liz's story and find out what it's like to have to live and die outside the law.
0: dead is produced by andrew denton and bronwyn reed for thought fox and the team from the wheeler center visit wheelercentrecom slash better dead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode
2: 12 angels from the north 12 angels from the south 12 angels from the east Twelve angels from the waves.
1: Ooh,
2: ooh, coming for to carry me away. Angels shooting from your brow. Angels leaping from your mouth.